dropping on my face. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. It's a man, it's a man, watch that. Welcome to the Matt Watch That Podcast, the place for reviews, rants, and randomness. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to watch a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, critic's choice, or cult classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, I wanted to kick off February by celebrating Black History Month, so this episode is focused on movies, television, music, and other forms of entertainment that feature African American artists. I've always loved stand-up comedy. And I think some of the most cutting-edge and influential have come from the African-American community. Dave Chappelle, Red Fox, Moms Mabley, Chris Rock, Dick Gregory, Kevin Hart, Nipsey Russell, Whoopi Goldberg, Eddie Griffin, Flip Wilson, Patrice O'Neill. But in the 80s, a new generation of stand-ups were emerging, led by Eddie Murphy. His impressions of Buckwheat, Mr. Robinson, and Gumby on Saturday Night Live became pop culture staples. Then, in 1982, he made his big-screen debut in 48 Hours, followed by Trading Places in 83, and Best Defense and Beverly Hills Cop in 84. But he should not be forgotten as a groundbreaking stand-up. Even though Delirious from 1983 is considered the superior special, Raw from 1987 was the one that I watched the most. It was pure chaos from beginning to end. And that purple and black leather outfit was a little suspect. But on the Mount Rushmore of stand-up has to be Richard Pryor. I know I'm not breaking any new ground by saying that. He was no holds barred, no subjects untouched, no person unoffended. The first special I saw was live on the Sunset Strip, which was released in 1982. This was after the incident where he accidentally set himself on fire while on a freebasing binge. He was open and honest and funny about that subject. You don't expect anything less from him. It was soon after that I tried getting my hands on Pryor's earlier work. It was tough before YouTube. He was an incredible talent whose work is still relevant decades later, which tells you something about the lack of progress in society. We need to support stand-ups as they stand up to the people who should really be canceled. Politicians. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It. Two stars watch at your own risk, three stars standard fare, four stars worth checking out, and five stars must see. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie Dreamgirls from 2006. It was based on the 1981 Broadway musical with book and lyrics by Tom Ian and music by Henry Krieger. So how'd I miss it? This was around the time that I was pretty much over musicals. I had been disappointed by a few too many and didn't want to give this one a chance. I know it got a lot of great reviews, praise, and awards, but still didn't convince me. 
It was written and directed by Bill Condon, who helmed Kinsey, Mr. Holmes, The Good Liar, and Breaking Dawn Part 1 and 2. He also wrote the screenplays for Chicago, The Greatest Showman, and won a Best Writing screenplay based on material previously produced or published for Gods and Monsters. This is something to look out for. Jaleel White, Steve Urkel from Family Matters, has a cameo appearance as a theater manager in the opening scene. The movie begins during a local talent review, which the winners would receive a week's paid engagement at the famous Detroit Theater. One of the acts is the girl group The Dreamettes, who have been singing together since they were 12. The lead singer is Effie White, portrayed by Jennifer Hudson, who is in the Sex and the City movie, Winnie Mandela, and Respect. This was her film debut, and she won the Academy Award for Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role. I would have quit right there. The backup singers are Dina Jones, played by Beyoncé, known for Austin Powers in Goldmember, The Lion King Remake, and Destiny's Child and Laurel Robinson, performed by Anika Noni-Rose, of The Princess and the Frog and Power fame. She is a Tony Award winner for Caroline or Change. After losing the contest, Dina is on the verge of giving up. She knows that they have talent, but they're not getting their big break. Enter Curtis Taylor Jr., who approaches the women and asks if they would like to sing behind Mr. Jimmy Early that night for $30 each and a guaranteed 10-week engagement on the road for $400 a week. Effie initially refuses because she isn't a background singer, but is eventually convinced by the smooth-talking car salesman turned their new manager. He's acted by Jamie Foxx, whose filmography includes Ali, Collateral, In Living Color, and won a Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role Oscar for Ray. So we meet James Thunder Early and his manager Marty Madison. He warns the singer not to hook up with the women he works with, to which he responds, I'm working all the time, how am I supposed to meet the ladies? Not so subtle foreshadowing. James Early almost immediately tries to hook up with Laurel and she denies his advances because he's married, but eventually succumbs to his charm. The amorous singer is portrayed by Eddie Murphy, who is in Beverly Hills Cop, 48 Hours, The Nutty Professor, and Shrek. His manager is played by Danny Glover of Lethal Weapon, Silverado, and The Color Purple fame. James Early was a groundbreaker, but other performers have taken his signature moves and stealing his act, which is no longer working for him anymore. Curtis says that he needs a new sound. He wants to take the music to a broader audience. He introduces the singer to Effie's brother, Cece, a talented composer who writes the songs for the Dreamettes, performed by Keith D. Robinson. Curtis builds a recording studio at his car dealership and convinces James to record the song Cadillac Car. The single rises up the charts, but when it's covered by an all-white group, Dave and the Sweethearts, the hit reaches higher potential and popularity. Curtis decides that they need to become friends with the most important DJs. They need to pay for play, which was illegal. He sells all the cars in his dealership for the dough to get radio play for the singles by his artists on Rainbow Records. James Early and the Dreamettes receive their first number one hit, Step Into the Bad Side, and they make an appearance at the Apollo Theater. Curtis has a vision to get them booked in Miami and eventually on American Bandstand. This puts him at odds with Marty, who believes they're not ready for a mainstream audience. He would turn out to be right when they're met with a cold reception from the majority white audience. During the performance, Curtis notices that people are looking at Dina and it gives him an idea. He decides to break off their association with James Early and take the group 
now dubbed The Dreams, to the next level with Dina singing lead. Will this be the beginning of their breakthrough or the beginning of their breakup? Here's a quote without context. It doesn't take a whiz to know that only a desperate man would drop his pants in living color on national television. Bet you want to know how that plays out in the film. Dreamgirls was an impressive movie. The performances all around were really strong. I don't think there was a weak one in the cast. It was a star-making role for Jennifer Hudson and further solidified Beyoncé as a crossover artist. I thought Eddie Murphy was perfect as a James Brown knockoff trying to maintain relevance. I don't normally talk about the makeup and costumes, but I'll always give credit, especially when viewing a period piece, so kudos to the makeup department and costume designer Sharon Davis. The only problem that I had with the movie is that there are real-life accounts of girl groups or bands breaking up that are much more interesting. We've heard these stories before. No new ground is being broken. Though you don't always need that, but there should be something that makes the audience go, oh, I wasn't expecting that. And this movie didn't have that. It felt like watching the the behind-the-music Chris Gaines episode. And while the musical numbers were catchy, when they were performing for a crowd or in the recording studio, it all made sense. But when they just broke out into song, it always feels odd in a movie setting. When I'm in a theater on Broadway, I can suspend my disbelief a bit, but this is a different medium, and I think adjustments need to be made for that. Otherwise, I'm gonna start singing my feelings. Sounds weird. But overall, I really liked the filmmaking aspect and the set pieces. It was beautifully directed. Now for a little trivial trivia. The movie has been in developmental hell since the mid-80s, and artists attached to it were Spike Lee, Joel Schumacher, Howard Ashman, Whitney Houston, and Lauren Hill. The cinematography was captured by Tobias A. Schlesler, whose filmography includes The Rundown, Hancock, Friday Night Lights, and Lone Survivor. It was edited by Virginia Katz, who worked on The Expendables, Felicity, Alias, and All About Steve. The score was composed by Stephen Trask, who wrote the music for Hedwig and the Angry Inch, The Savages, and Little Fockers. Four new songs were composed for the film, with music by Henry Krieger, and lyrics by Scott Cutler, Anne Previn, Saida Garrett, Willie Real, and Beyoncé. Now, I'm not familiar with the Broadway show, so I couldn't tell you what the new songs were versus the originals. I think it's a compliment to the songwriters that they could make these additions so seamlessly. But the music is the star of the film. All of them had such great grooves. Any of them would fit perfectly on Motown Records in 1960. The runtime is 2 hours 10 minutes. I know I normally complain about runtime, but most musicals in the theater are 2.5 hours with a 15 minute intermission, so I'm happy with the length here. It had a budget of $80 million and grossed $155 million at the box office. It was nominated for eight Oscars at the 2007 Academy Awards, winning two. I give it around four out of five stars. Like, I'm glad I saw it, but will it go into rotation as a movie I have to see again? Probably not. I would be interested in seeing a reprisal on Broadway, though. If you've seen Dreamgirls and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Moving right along. Each episode, I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. For people in my generation, I think we know Darlene Love best as the wife of Sergeant Murtaugh from the Lethal Weapon movies. 
In fact, I had no idea that she was even a singer prior to seeing her in those films. But she's had a very interesting career. She started singing at a very young age and was soon a protege of producer Phil Spector. She provided uncredited lead vocals on the songs He's a Rebel and He's Sure the Boy I Love that were attributed to the Crystals. In 1963, she recorded and released her most famous song and my favorite holiday classic, Christmas Baby Please Come Home, which was featured over the title credits in Gremlins. And for as long as The Late Show with David Letterman was on the air, each year before they went on holiday break, she would come on and sing the song. Another Christmas song written by Steve Van Zandt, All Alone on Christmas, was featured in Home Alone 2 and Love Actually. Throughout the 70s and 80s, she was a sought-after vocalist, contributing her talents to songs by Bill Medley, Sam Cooke, Elvis Presley, The Ronettes, and The Beach Boys. Part of her story was told in the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom about the experiences of background singers. She is certainly iconic and has an incredible voice and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2011, finally being recognized for her contributions to music. I've selected a couple of clips that'll be available in the Matt Watch That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about... In Living Color co-created and starring Damon and Keenan Ivory Wayans, alongside their siblings Kim, Sean, and Marlon, as well as Tommy Davidson, Jim Carrey, Kim Coles, Jamie Foxx, David Allen Greer, Kelly Cofield, and Takiya Crystal Kima. Now, I was never a religious watcher of sketch comedy series. The first one I remember seeing was The Carol Burnett Show. I was a huge fan of hers through the movie Annie, where she played Miss Hannigan, but that series was before my time. I'm just a bit of an old soul and would watch reruns on TBS. Then in the early 90s, Saturday Night Live had a group of performers emerging and creating memorable sketches. Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, Chris Rock, Julia Sweeney, Rob Schneider, Chris Farley, Ellen Cleghorn, David Spade, Adam Sandler, Victoria Jackson, Tim Meadows, Norm MacDonald. It was a pretty good time to watch that show. But my favorite was in Living Color. I'm not sure if it was the catchy theme song, the neon colors, the fly girls, but I was hooked. What I liked most about the show was that they always seemed to push the envelope with their sketches. It had more social commentary, a lot more biting and risque than SNL. It was way over the top, too. It's incredible to think that in only five seasons, the amount of output between the unforgettable characters and one-liners that continue to resonate today. Head Detective, Homie D. Clown, Fire Marshal Bill, Men on Film, Wanda. I remember seeing outtakes from a music video parody of Gypsy Woman by Crystal Waters that Kim Waynes did. It was called My Songs Are Mindless, and I can't tell you how that stuck with me for 30 years. There are parts I still recite verbatim today. It's such a groundbreaking show that if it were to air today, Twitter would try to get it canceled every other episode. In Living Color was on for five seasons, 127 episodes from 1990 to 1994. It won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Variety, Music, or Comedy Series. 
That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've discussed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for the latest news and updates, and come back next time for all the reviews, rants, and randomness. Even though Delirious from 1983 is considered the the suspicious special, the score was composed by Stephen Trask, who wrote the music for Hedwig and the Angui. And the Angui. Hedwig and the Angui Inch. <laughs> Co-created and starring brothers Damon and Keenan Ivy Rains. Who? <laughs>